chromosomes. Little strands of nucleic acids and proteins are the fundamental genetic instructions that tell us who we are at birth. Most people are born with 46 chromosomes, but each year in the United States, about 6,000 people are born with an extra chromosome, making them a person with Down syndrome. If you've ever encountered someone with Down syndrome, you know that they are some of the kindest, most joyful people you will ever meet. They truly have something extra. My name is Lisa Nichols, and I have spent the last 24 years as both the CEO of Technology Partners and as the mother to Allie. Allie has something extra in every sense of the word. I have been blessed to be by her side as she impacts everyone she meets. Through these two important roles as CEO and mother to Allie, I have witnessed countless life lessons that have fundamentally changed the way I look at the world. While you may not have an extra chromosome, every leader has something extra that defines who you are. Join me as I explore the something extra in leaders from all walks of life and discover how that difference in each of them has made a difference in their companies, their families, their communities, and in themselves. I'm thrilled to have Scott Jeffrey Miller on the show today. Scott is the former CMO of Franklin Covey and still serves as a senior advisor. He's a multi-time author, a sought-after keynote speaker, the host of the On Leadership podcast, and so much more. If you like this episode today, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a five-star rating. So Scott, welcome to the Something Extra podcast. I am thrilled that we could make this happen. I cannot wait for this interview because I know every time you and I've been on the call together, we're laughing. We're just having so much fun. So I know our listeners are just really going to, you know, enjoy learning from you today. So thank you so much for making the time to be on the show. Oh, Lisa, my pleasure. I'm delighted that you provided me the platform and the spotlight to come back on today. So great to see you. Well, hey, listen, we got a lot to talk about. So I'm going to dig right in here. Tell me a little bit about growing up and tell me a little bit about your mom, because I know that she was really a lot of the precipice for your hard work ethic. I don't know how you know that, but you would be right. So I was raised in Central Florida in the 80s. My mother was originally, I think, a North Carolina girl. Her name is Rowena, R-O-W-E-N-A Miller. And she likes to be known as Boots. So colloquially for 80 plus years, she's been called Boots Miller. My mother was not a professional. She never worked outside of the home. A day in her married life, been married to my father for, gosh, just shy of... 60 years now. She was a dental assistant for a couple of years in her early 20s, was married at 22, and spent her entire life raising my brother and I. My brother is four years older than I am, and uh, she's still alive. Talked to her on Father's Day with my father, who's still alive, back in the same house they were married in. Can you believe they've lived in the same home for almost 60 years? I've owned five homes in 10 years. So I didn't get my stability from them. I I like risk-taking. They're very stable people, not so uncommon for their generation. But what's interesting about my mother, my mother was the daughter, only child of two alcoholic parents, one who whose life ended and one I think who may have taken their life. It's kind of a family non-discussable. But my mother was a very hard worker. In fact, the best impression of memory I have of my mom is every morning when I would come to breakfast in the kitchen, elementary school, junior high school, high school, my mother was always reading the newspaper. 
at the breakfast table. Every morning, the Orlando Central, I was born in Orlando, Florida. And for 18 years, I had this indelible impression of my mother, who was not a professional, not college educated, reading the newspaper because just being literate in politics and interesting information was important in our family. And it really spawned a lifelong love of reading and being a voracious consumer of magazines and newspapers. And now I'm an author of five books and many more to come. So I really attribute my love for reading, my ability to express myself verbally, my vocabulary, my ability to write from my mother. I should tell her that. You should tell her that. Write her a letter. You know, you are an author, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) But I will tell you this. A few months ago, I asked my mom if she enjoyed my last book. And she said, you know, I just haven't had time. I'm like, what are you doing? You're 80 and rich and retired. What are you doing? You don't have time to read my book, mom? Maybe you should put it on audio for her, Scott. You may already have it on audio. It's on audio, Boots. Get the American Express. Swipe it. Amazon.com. I read that when you were just a little tyke, She would make you go around the neighborhood and ask people if you could mow their lawn or rake their lawn, rake their leaves. She said, don't come home until you have five new customers. It's true. (laughs) I was raised in an upper middle class family. We didn't need to have side jobs, but my parents did and still in my brother and I, we had lawn jobs almost every day after school, all day on Saturday. I was not an outgoing, confident kid, right? I was kind of thin and kind of, you know, shy. And so my mother would force us to walk around to all the homes in like a 10 block radius and knock on doors and ask them, can I mow your lawn? And can I wash your car? Can I pull your weeds? Can I rake your yard? And the big deal wasn't doing the work. The big deal was the awkward conversation of knocking on a door somebody I didn't know. Huge. And just having a conversation and negotiating a price and it was torture. Right. I mean, now I can talk to anybody about anything. I mean, I have no fear, but I attribute my mother with instilling that in me. Yes, for sure. It wasn't just mowing the lawns and making money, knowing how to interact with people. You're exactly right. It was taking that money and budgeting it and putting it in envelopes for church, for savings, for contributions, for things that I wanted. We didn't get an allowance. We had everything we needed very little of what we wanted. And I'll tell you to your point, Lisa, I learned later in life that my parents had a philosophy, which was because we can, doesn't mean we will. Oh, I love that. They could have bought me nicer cars and better motor scooters, and but they held back on a lot of things. And I should do more of that with my three sons. Right. Oh, goodness, Scott. Am I in therapy? Has my wife secretly <laughs> signed me up for a virtual therapist? Is this, this is awesome. Uh, yeah, exactly. You didn't even know it. That's so funny. But you know what? To your point, it's the harder thing to withhold. It's so true. The easier thing is to do more for your children. And Lisa, I'm right there, right? I'm in that classic conundrum of my wife and I have, like you and your husband, have had great success in business and we could afford to do most of what we want, not all. We have these three young boys that are six, nine, and 11, and we want to provide them with a better life than we were raised with. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we realize we have what we have because our parents held back and they taught us a great work ethic. So that's a tension, isn't it? To want to give your children every opportunity without spoiling them so that they don't have the work ethic to earn what they need to on their own. Yes. I love it. Parenting sucks. Don't (laughs) Parenting sucks. Don't completely remove the struggle and the hunger. And there is a fine balance there. 
We didn't always do it right. But you know what? There's so much I want to talk about, but I love that story about your mom. You know, you are a multi-time author. You're the host of the On Leadership podcast. Uh, you designed and launched the Ignite Your Genius coaching series. As you said, you're a dad to three young sons, husband to Stephanie. Yes, yes. You are doing so much, Scott. I have to ask you, and this is a big question. How are you managing your energy? Yeah. Like morning routines and things like that. Talk to us a little bit. Coach us on this, please. You know, what's funny is you probably left out seven major projects that I'm working on, TV, radio, and more books in the series. Here's what I have learned. I, I do have a natural level of energy that is matched by few, God-given. I live my life in enormous gratitude. It is mindful every moment of how blessed I am to be able to work and see and drink and walk and speak. I, I have a lot of friends and life that are not as blessed as I am. And I use that as a remembrance every moment of every day. I'm to be grateful for all that I have and put those talents, strengths, weaknesses to work. Here's what I do do. I know my circadian cycle well. It was Dan Pink that taught me this concept of knowing your peak, your trough, and your recovery. So I am very attuned to my own natural cycle. My peak is 4 a.m. to 10.30 in the morning. And I am the energizer bunny, my most creativity, my energy, my thoughtfulness, my decision-making, my problem-solving. You get me from 4 a.m., no kidding, to 10.30, it's all my genius. 10.30 to 1, I'm in a bit of a trough. I'm hungry. I want my lunch. I'm focused on administrative things. And then I, I tend to come stronger back in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. You know, 3 to 5, I get a bit of a burst. And then I tend to go downhill in the evening times. <laughs> I sleep. I'm, I'm asleep at 9.30. Good. And I'm up at 4 because I need seven hours of sleep, minimum. Critical. Not eight, but about seven to seven and a half. So I just have a fairly regimented life where if you come by my house at 4 in the morning, I'm in my office working and writing. Scott, do you write every day? I do because I write a column for Inc. Magazine every week. I have a blog that I write every week. I write multiple articles for other magazines that call me, and I have commitments to publishers for more books. So I do write mm -hmm. every day, <laughs> but early in the morning, typically. Well, speaking of, I did read an article that you had written, and it was called Preparation and Respect. You know, you said really preparing for something is more about respecting the other person. And you tell the story about Rudy Giuliani. And do you remember... What you wrote about that? I do now. <laughs> I don't recall that article because I've written thousands, but let's face it. Rudy's had a tough run. I don't know. Something happened. I was in the water. Or I don't know what happened there, but we'll just, we'll forget the last five years of Rudy Giuliani, if you don't mind. Right. Before that, I was a big fan of Rudy Giuliani, right? One of the most successful federal prosecutors ever in New York. I saw him speak numerous times and Rudy said once at a speech that I saw that for every hour in the courtroom arguing a case, he spent three to four hours back in his office preparing for it. And that really had a profound impact on me. I worked for the Disney company for four years, Franklin Covey yes. for 25 years. I'm still associated with the company as an advisor and ambassador, but I do, I think being on time, being prepared, these are more about your respect for other people's time than even your own. When you come to a meeting and you are on time, ready to go, organized, prepared, have an agenda, have your questions, it shows that you care about the other people's time in the room. You respect that they have other things going on. And for me, it's just a ultimate sign of respect and also 
it's a hallmark of your brand. Yes, I could not agree with you more on that. I mean, and for our listeners, when you are going to a meeting, make sure that you've done your homework, you know, and you come with ideas. Lisa, can I, can I build on that for a moment? Yes, please do. There's a famous Hollywood producer named Brian Grazier. You know him as Ron Howard's partner, Imagine Entertainment, right? He's made some of the biggest movies of all time. He wrote a book called A Curious Mind. And I was preparing to interview him for the podcast. And he shares this amazing story. You have this famous Hollywood producer, Brian Grazier, right? He's researching for a science fiction movie he's thinking of producing. And he calls up the famous scientist, Isaac Asimov. And he says, hey, could I interview you for this potential movie I'm thinking of optioning? So he takes Isaac Asimov to dinner in New York City with his then wife, with Isaac Asimov's current wife. So you've got Brian Grazier, this famous Hollywood producer, at dinner with Isaac Asimov and his wife. A couple of minutes into the, quote, interview, the wife stands up and says to Brian Grazier, it's clear by the shallowness of your questions that you've not properly researched my husband or his work. This interview is over. You're wasting his time. And the wife and Isaac Asimov got up and walked out and left Brian Grazier, like one of the, it'd be like leaving Steven Spielberg sitting there. And Brian Grazier shares this story and he says, well, yeah, I was horrified and offended, but you know what? She was right. I hadn't done the proper research to respect his body of work. And that passage that I read years ago has never left me around the ultimate sign of respect. You know this well, right? You've looked at my cards. You've read my bio. You know about my mother. You've done the work to honor me on your podcast. And so you're a perfect example of this, Lisa. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'll float you a few dollars later, Scott. <laughs> I bet you Brian Grazier, you know, was different. I'm sure, right? Yeah, I yeah, mean. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so there's so much more I want to talk about, and I want to get into your new books, but I want to talk just a little bit because you, for 25 years, and you're still an advisor to them, you worked for Franklin Covey. I remember the Franklin Covey. I remember Franklin Planner. Seven Habits was one of those business books that I have never forgotten. I still talk about sharpening the saw, you know, starting with the end in mind. You were the CMO. You did multiple things. That's right. Yeah. You know, and I read that the vision is we enable greatness in people and organizations everywhere. Yes. There's just a few things. I mean, you guys synthesize data from more than 225,000 different respondents. I mean, the information that you guys present is really founded on data. You know, it's not just pulling things out of the air. But, you know, I love this. You say, okay, you're enabling greatness. Well, what is greatness? He says here, he goes, the strategic hand dealt to great performers was not materially different from that dealt to good ones. The great performers simply did more with the hand they were dealt. Yeah, Bob's been our chairman and CEO for 23 years. You know, we do two things to your point. We teach principles of effectiveness, natural laws that govern human behavior. And then we prove it through world-class data and research and literally millions of implementations and tens of millions of 360-degree profiles. So the company has been in business for 40 years. Of course, our founder was Dr. Stephen R. Covey. He wrote the book, as you mentioned, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I had a great run. I lived all over the world for the company, was a, a lead salesperson and sales vice president, chief marketing officer. I was an officer in the company, and now I'm privileged to still advise them on their thought leadership strategy. But it's a great collection of people. 
And we teach people how to achieve their own definition of greatness. We don't prescribe greatness for anybody. We just tell you, here are common principles that will help you achieve greatness. You define what greatness looks like. We'll help you get there. Uh, I love it. Well, and then you're doing that for organizations, you know, and organizations obviously are made up of individuals. So it go. all works together. But how much fun for you to have worked for that company for 25 years. Thanks for reminding me. Because after 25 years, you can get fatigued, right? Sure. Even in marriage, it's helpful sometimes to remind yourself how good you have it. So I appreciate the reminder. Absolutely. Well, we have so much more to talk about, but we need to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Scott Jeffrey Miller. Hi, everybody. I just wanted to take a second and tell you about something our team at Technology Partners can do for your business. We have spent over two decades partnering with organizations and helping them solve their IT needs from a 360-degree perspective. A huge part of how we solve those needs is by developing custom applications of all shapes and sizes. If your team is looking for software and an out-of-the-box solution just isn't right, it's time to consider how we might be able to help. Go to tpi.co slash custom apps and learn more about our awesome capabilities. So Scott, you and I have kind of talked a little bit about this offline, and I just thought we would just talk about this a little bit because it applies to so many different situations and a little bit about what we just talked about with the preparedness. But, you know, I was telling you that I just posted the iceberg in Habitudes, they say, you know, the 10% above the line are your skills. What's below the line is the character of the leader. And it's the below the line that will wreck your ship. But we talked about this and the commonality of what you see, you know, we see this much, but what you don't see is below the line. And you said there's been a commonality of thread in every one of your podcast guests. Tell our listeners that thread. Well, I think you're raising the iceberg metaphor is really timely. It can be used in so many applications, right? Your character, your competence, your experience. Like you, I've been able to have some amazing guests on this On Leadership podcast and these are some of the top names in business and industry. These people are not any smarter than you or me. In many cases, they're as talented as we are. What separates them from most people is their work ethic. But perhaps even more importantly is what you see is their success. You see the tipping point. You see the best-selling book. You see the television program, the movie. You don't see the thousands of screen plays they read that didn't get optioned hundreds of callbacks that didn't happen. The pilots that were taped that never got released. To a T, these celebrities, these big business titans, what they have in common is they had setbacks. And I think the public only sees what you see on Netflix, or you see at Barnes & Noble, what you see at a big conference. You don't see all of the trials. Here's a great example. Rachel Hollis is a friend of mine. She's had a rough year. She's, of course, the famous author of Girl, Wash Your Face, Girl, Stop Apologizing. Yes. She sold more books in America last year than anybody else, second only to Michelle Obama. You never heard of Party Girl. You've never heard of Smart Girl. You never heard of her first five books. It was her fifth and sixth book that skyrocketed her from earning $4,000 a speech to $120,000 a speech within a month. But if you looked at what Rachel had done for 15 years, podcasting, blogging, Instagramming, building a brand, building a following, toiling, writing books that no one read, and then all of a sudden, girl, wash your face, girls are apologizing, and a couple others since then. 
that same principle is used. Harrison Ford, Matthew McConaughey, Brene Brown, on and on and on and on, right? I mean, they all share the same of decades of hard work behind the scene where you never saw the number of movies that Matthew McConaughey was passed over for. And then I think it was um, A Time to Kill. That was his big sort of coming out. He went from overnight. He'll tell you in one hour. He was at the Santa Monica Pier the night before the movie came out and no one knew him. And the next morning, like he couldn't even like be in public ever again. One day, but he'd spent decades building those skills and having no, 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 no come his way. Yeah. And so, you know what? That should instill hope in people. It should. I was talking to a young entrepreneur a couple weeks ago, and I was telling him, I have never seen an entrepreneur be successful that did not embrace the hustle. It's so true. Three quick thoughts. There is no such thing as overnight success. There is overnight fame. The two are not the same. Secondly, I interviewed Karen Dillon, who's the former editor of the Harvard Business Review. She co-authored a very famous book with Clayton Christensen called How Will You Measure Your Life? Great book. And in this book, they share some data from a colleague at the Harvard Business School that said that empirically speaking, 93% of all organizations that achieve financial success do it with an emergent strategy, not the deliberate strategy that they set out with. Only 7% of the time are companies successful with the original idea of the owner or the founder. They have to pivot, change their mind, be open to be influenced. They have to be able to be emotionally agile and nimble. And I think that's a great reminder for everybody that great leaders, great entrepreneurs are in many cases simply willing to do what other people aren't. They're willing to work harder. So true. That they recognize there's no such thing as overnight success. And they also realize that what got them here may not get them there, that their idea, their arrogance might need to be replaced with some humility and say, well, gosh, that's not the best idea. Who thinks we have a better one? Who's got a better idea? Yes. And that's hard when you're the founder or the owner because you think everything has to flow from you. One of Dr. Covey's most profound things he said was humble leaders are more concerned with what is right than being right. And I have to remind myself that multiple times a day as a husband, as a parent, as an entrepreneur. Oh my goodness, yeah. C.S. Lewis' definition of humility is my favorite one. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. You know, and that's hard right now, Lisa, right? Where everyone's trying to build a brand and everyone's trying to break out and trying to get followers and attention. And when the new media isn't billboards, right? It is social media and social groups. And it requires a, a level of confidence and humility to think of yourself less but not be so overly humble that you're not building a brand and building influence. It's a, it's a calibrated challenge we face every day. Well, I want to get into your books. I read something where you said, you know, sometimes we have to release our past and write our own story. Yeah. In a way, everybody can be an author of their own story. Yeah. What did you mean when you said that? I was preparing for an interview with Viola Davis, the famous actor, producer, director, right? And she wrote a passage in Brene Brown's book, I think it was Dare to Lead, where she said she was raised in abject poverty. Like literally she would come home as a child and not know if the lights or the water would be even be on. There was days when this, you know, the glorious Viola Davis would go to school and she had not had a shower and she would smell and the kids would tease her. And it was, you know, a rough upbringing. And then she decided to change her life and she was going to move to Hollywood. And her friend said, Viola, if you're going to move to Hollywood, you got to have thick skin. 
And I can kind of relate to that because I was a single Catholic boy from Orlando who moved to Utah 25 years ago where there wasn't a Catholic in the state, right? A very evangelizing faith with the Latter-day Saints out here, lovely group of people. And I thought, I love that idea of having thick skin. And Viola writes, the problem with thick skin, nothing gets in, but nothing gets out. And instead of thick skin, you should have transparent skin. Stuff comes in, stuff comes out. And in this interview, she talked about the power of knowing your story. And I said, knowing your story, that kind of sounds like Reiki or Sound Bowl or just things that I'm not into, right? And then the very next day, I'm interviewing another guy named Eric Barker. He wrote a book called Barking Up the Wrong Tree, famous social scientist, where he also talks about knowing your story. I'm like, two times in two days? So Lisa, I go home that night to my wife, Stephanie. I crawl in bed at 10 o'clock at night and I say, Stephanie, have you ever told yourself your story? She says, what are you talking about? I'm like, you know, have you ever like told yourself your life story? I turn over and she's asleep because, <laughs> you know, we have three boys that all have my personality. Right. <laughs> so Lisa, at 10, 15 at night, I get out of bed. I walk to the kitchen in the pitch black. I pull out a huge wire whisk to use as a microphone. <laughs> and I walk around my living room for 45 minutes and I tell myself my story. All my fears, all my passions, all the lies that have been told about me by people who didn't like me, my parents, by my principals, by my educators. And I walk around and I just kind of confront myself. I get on another podcast, share all the things, but I basically said, you know, I took algebra one three times in high school. Hello, he's not going to be a mathematician. <laughs> I um, was put into slow reading classes in elementary school by my principal. I was told I was slow. I'm a stutterer. I actually have a pronounced stutter. I've had a speech therapist and speech pathologist my whole life. I uh, had great fear of speaking in public. And I, to this day, I have a strong stutter that I work really hard on. And it was that night that I decided to stop living my life for others and living it for myself. It's Oprah Winfrey's partner, Stedman Graham, who's my dear friend, said to me, most people spend their lives fulfilling an identity that others prescribe for them. Instead, create your own identity of who you want to be and go live that. And it was that night that kind of all this came together. And I decided to write the future of my story. So the next day I went out, I landed myself a radio program on iHeartRadio as a stutterer. I wrote a book. Here I am two years later with four books published and deals to write 16 more of them. I've got a, a pilot working with uh, Discovery Plus and all kinds of cool things going on because I, at age 50, I decided to write my own story. So for those listening, it's never too late. Yeah, I love it. Don't forget, Dr. Stephen R. Covey released the Seven Habits book when he was 56. Yeah, here's what I say. You know, the timing, sometimes we're not ready. He probably was not ready to release that book when he was 36. He needed that preparation time, right? I wasn't ready either. To your point, I wasn't ready either. But that night, yeah, I willed myself ready. Right. Here's what I would also say. Don't discount any of the time. Even if things are not coming to fruition right now, still be in preparation mode. Don't waste that time. So I'm so excited about your books and the management mess to leadership success. Everybody should go buy it. I love how it's organized. The first part is leading yourself. How can you be a leader of other people if you can't lead yourself? So that's the first part. You have these challenges to becoming the leader that you would follow. The second piece is leading others. And then <laughs> we all have to get results. Results matter, do they not? And so I love the way that it is written. And, you know, this doesn't have to be a linear thing. I mean, you can go to Challenge 18 if you want. 
but there's 30 different challenges. And so I love this because you kind of call yourself an accidental leader. Definitely. I think a lot of people are accidental leaders. But in your introduction, you go, I wrote this book for those who feel they weren't perfectly groomed for leadership. Those with a bit of mess in them, whether that comes from being an outsider, a lack of experience, a lack of training, or all of the above. And so you wrote that book for people that feel like there's a bit of mess. And guess what? We all have a bit of mess in us. All of us have a mess in us. The premise of all of my books in the Mess of Success series are that everyone's got a mess going on. And as a leader, when you own your mess, you make it safe for others to own theirs around you. You have the confidence, the humility to teach through your messes. I, I, Lisa, I can't replicate how smart you are. I can't look like you. I can't talk like you. I can't replicate your successes. But as my leader, I can learn from your mistakes and your messes and avoid those. You can tell me, you did this, you said this, you bought this, you should have sold that. And I can learn from that. And so for me, I just think there's enormous power in leaders teaching through their mistakes. It requires a level of vulnerability that a lot of leaders don't have. The statistics show that the average age someone receives their first promotion into a management position is age 30. Yet, according to the Harvard Business Review, the average age that same person receives their first formal leadership development training, age 42. And that you've got a sea of highly competent independent producers that were promoted to lead people when the skills that got them where they are are often inversely correlated to leading people. And now they've got 12 years empirically where they're wrecking havoc across people and jobs and cultures and organizations when most of them should not have been leaders of people. I'm not sure I should have been. It takes a very unique person, just like it takes a unique person to be an airline pilot or an anesthesiologist. Not everyone should be a leader of people, and that's okay. The problem is in most organizations, the hierarchy is set up where if you want to earn more money or have a title or get promoted, you have to lead people. And therefore, you're promoting the best salesperson to be a sales leader. And those people are diametrically opposed when it comes to competencies. Right. Rarely is what makes you the top salesperson make you even a mediocre sales leader. Yes. Oh, gosh, we see it all the time in tech. Yeah. You take the software architect that nobody can hold a candle to and you put them in a leadership role. We see it all the time. So we're doing things around that. You know, one of the things, listening first, declaring your intent. One that I love, though, Carry your own weather. What does that mean? That's an idea popularized by Dr. Covey, right? This is about proactive people do not give up their mental state of mind to outside influences, to outside circumstances, that you are clear on what your values are, your priorities, your legacy, and that you don't let the traffic or someone that, you know, tells you off or your boss who's having a bad day comes in and slams the door. It doesn't affect you. That you're just so grounded in who you are that you refuse to give up your mental well-being to the urgencies or the tirades of someone else is that you are in control of your mindset. You carry your own weather. I love that. There's just so many more. People need to go get the book. They really do. Well, thank you. Buy one for all your team members while you're at yeah. it. <laughs> you know, and I told you, I love these little cards. So with your books, you've got these little cards, a little deck of cards. And I just pulled out a few. I was thinking, you know what? If you want to be a better at your role, just pick one of these cards, pick one of these challenges a day or pick one a week and work on it. That's how I wrote the books, right? Every book I write has 30 challenges. You can start anywhere, go everywhere. My books are breezy. They're fast. They're not meant to be like Harvard level books. They're just real books from a real leader telling stories. And like you said on my website, 
You can also buy the card deck that kind of matches the book. Each of my books has a separate card deck. I use them for keynote speeches, but a lot of leaders buy them for their teams. And like you said, they do a different challenge every day for 30 days. And you can buy the card separately at scottjeffreymiller.com. Yes, yes. Challenge eight here. Lots of stuff won't work. This is from a marketing perspective. You said balance the size of your quiver with the accuracy of your arrow. And I love this. You're talking to marketing people and you're saying become the leader of business development. That's why I wrote the book. I was so tired of marketing leaders hiding under brand and brand equity and impressions. No, 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 no. Your job is to get in sales boat and row with them in the same direction. I was tired of sales and marketing fighting and pointing the finger. It's why I tripled the national average of a public company CMO was because the CEO was convinced that I cared as much about revenue and profit and EBITDA as the EVP of sales. And that I would not do things that were satisfying my own creative outlet for the sake of that, that I was fiercely focused on owning revenue for the company. Yeah. Marketing professionals, listen to that. <laughs> it's true. That's why you exist. To drive revenue and meet clients' needs. Yeah. I didn't write the book to shame marketers, but I do take marketing to task occasionally. I actually think marketing mess to brand success will actually be purchased more by sales leaders and they're going to give it to their marketing colleague. Yeah. In fact, that's what I hope it happens. I'm okay with that. All right. Very good. Well, Scott, I have to ask you, this is something extra. What do you believe, Scott, is the something extra that every leader needs? You know, Dr. Covey wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's often mispronounced or confused as the seven habits of highly efficient people. There is a difference between being efficient and being effective. One is not better than the other. In fact, I'm a very efficient person. You can tell that's from my energy and my productivity. And yes. what has built me my success is my productivity and efficiency. The problem is with your listeners and viewers that might relate to me, that's my mindset. It's my default paradigm is that I treat everything in an efficient manner. And you cannot be efficient with people. When you are dealing with relationships, you have to slow down. Dr. Covey said, with people, fast is slow. And slow is fast. So I would argue that something extra is know when to be efficient and know when to be effective. They're both important. Don't try to be efficient in your relationships. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. That's a first. I have not heard that one, Scott. So I want to give you the opportunity to tell our listeners about whatever it is that you want to tell them about. And you've got a lot of things that you can tell them about, but I'm going to leave that up to you. Lisa, again, I'm honored to be on the program today. Thank you for the spotlight. I have some great books coming out. Just launched Marketing Mess to Brand Success. In September, I'm releasing a new book called Master Mentors from HarperCollins, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds. I took 30 of my favorite interviews from the podcast, and I wrote a different chapter, about 30 people, and one specific insight that they shared, sometimes on camera, sometimes off camera. Sometimes it was before or after the interview, and the book comes out on September 7th called Master Mentors. It's available now for pre-order on every website. I'll be writing this book every year for 10 years, so I have a 10-year deal with the publisher, and next year will be 30 more new insights, new mentors, but pick up a copy of Master Mentors. I think you'll like it. It's easy. It's breezy. It's getting kind of start anywhere, go everywhere. Yeah. You see 30 is a theme in my life, in my literary life. So thank you for letting me talk about that. You also can visit scottjeffreymiller.com. All of my ink columns are there. My blogs, every podcast episode is there. All the books, all the card decks. You can learn how to book me as a speaker in your organization or association and 
thank you for letting me talk about it. Very good. Well, thank you again for being on the show today. This has been so much fun. Most fun I'm going to have all day, I'm sure. So there you go. But Scott, lots of fun. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you again for being on the show. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for listening to today's show. Something Extra with Lisa Nichols is a Technology Partners production. Copyright Technology Partners, Inc., 2019. For show notes or to reach Lisa, visit tpi.co slash podcast. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen.